So why I call it a blue tooth, not like a red or a green tooth, you're an IT. I think it has to do with like the color of the waves. They're blue waves that I've transmit the data. You also, is it blue? Um, like when you're talking or all the time there's just blue waves emitting from your ears? All the time there are blue waves emitting from the electronics which connect to your ears. So every time you tell me your ear pods aren't working, the blue is off. Does yes. It's yellow? It could be yellow. It could be red because it's not working. Or clear because there ain't shit going on when it's clear. Bluetooth technology was named after a Danish king, King Harold Blatant, who had a penchant for snacking on blueberries and was known for uniting warring factions in what is now Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. So it was blamed on blueberries. Yeah. Well. I thought it was named after your blue balls, but that's a different story. My name is John Edwards, and with me is Zeke Baker, and together we make the Dad's Drink of Bourbon. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, thank you for making us a part of your day. Before we get started here, we have a jam-packed show with awesome people that are here in the studio. I want to let you know we are sponsored by CastCartel.com, changing the industry standard of how you receive your alcohol. They are like the Amazon of the spirits industry. So you go on to CastCartel. They hook you up with a merchant just like they would if you went to Amazon.com and you wanted a new phone or wanted a new computer or TV. They are going to find you merchants that are going on to CastCartel that have alcohol for you to buy whether or not it's gin whether or not it's tequila mezcal bourbon whiskey scotch whatever it is cast cartel has it go to castcartel.com changing the industry standard and get liquor shipped directly to your door zeke i also want to let everyone know that all of our glassware is provided by distilleryproducts.com once a closely guarded secret that only the distilleries know about, now people know distilleryproducts.com is a place where you can go get wholesale glassware laser etched at affordable prices, and they are some of the greatest people to work with. So whether or not you need Glen Cairns, you need the Irish whiskey glass, the Tua, or you need neat glasses engraved, you have decanters, whatever it is, go to distilleryproducts.com. Check them out. If you want me to hook you up with them, I am more than happy to play matchmaker. Feel free to send me a message and I will get you in touch with the good folks at distilleryproducts.com. Hi, Zeke. Hello, John. Now that we got through all the formalities, we have two amazing people on the show today. We have Dr. Pat Heist from Wilderness Trail, along with uh, brand manager extraordinaire... Yeah, that'll work. Sure. Jared Smith, both from Wilderness Trail. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for coming. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Zeke has a look on his face like he's pissed at me. No. Oh, okay. No, I was thinking about something that slipped my mind and I can't get to come back now, so. This would have been awesome for the cold open rather than Bluetooth shit. Sorry, it's the best I had. 
Every like, time I talk to you, you went out like, sorry, my AirPods went out again, blah, 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 must be the Bluetooth. And so I was like, well, what does Bluetooth even stand for? I feel like that's a conversation that Jared and Pat are not having. I'm actually, I'm actually surprised you didn't know that, uh, about the Bluetooth being an IT. <clears throat> I, yeah. I mean, I'm in IT, but how often... Even if you look at the the Bluetooth symbol, it's runes, like, you know, right? I knew it was a rune, but I didn't yeah. know exactly what. <coughs> it actually said this in the... Um, Speaking of things you didn't know, you know how, like, you can send a picture to somebody on the iPhone? Yeah. And if you hold down the send button, it gives you all the options, like, you can, like, spray the screen with it? Did that to him today. He's like, how do you do that? I'm like, oh, man. I knew a simple trick that John didn't, and he's the IT guy. Derived from the old Danish runes of H and B. So you learn something new every day. Like H E B groceries. That store is awesome. It's like Meyer. You know, for those of you that are in Kentucky listening to this, it's the Meyer is pretty close to the H E B. It's like Walmart. It's like a super Walmart that has the grocery store part of it. That's kind of super Walmarts have groceries. I know, that's what I'm saying. The super Walmart that has the groceries, because not every Walmart has a grocery. Even the green ones have food now. And they're small. But the green ones are specific to food. No, they have stuff. I feel like we're wasting their time. we got to get to whiskey. But we have uh, Dr. Pat and Jared here. Wilderness Trail has been around for a lot longer than people think, although the physical distillery might have been around a little bit shorter. I mean... Firm Solutions was something, Pat, that you had been working on for a very, very long time. So tell everybody what you were doing and kind of how the distillery came to be, because you were a new name to the bourbon industry when you all of a sudden decided to build a distillery. Yep. So uh, a little bit of background there. Uh, Myself and my business partner, Shane Baker, we actually used to play in a rock band together in Danville, where the distillery is located. And my background is in microbiology, biochemistry. Shane's background is he's got a good business background. He's a a mechanical engineer. And, you know, back in the band days, we, you know, did a lot of talking about different things, did a lot of, you know, drinking a lot of bourbon and and different things. And, um, you know, when it came time to start Firm Solutions, you know, using my microbiology background and Shane's engineering background, um, you know, we came together and started that company. And what we do is we market yeast, enzymes, and uh, other fermentation products to uh, hundreds of distilleries. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how we got our start. Some people source whiskey, but some people can also source yeast. We have uh, evaluated most yeasts that are out there in the market. You know, and we do business with a lot of the different distilleries out there. So we have a, a fairly deep understanding of, you know, what, what strains are different distilleries using and then how do those strains compare and contrast from one distillery to the next. Did you go back and look at any of the old of uh, old Seagram stuff? Mm-hmm. From what uh, I understand, they, they had quite, you know, the team that really went in and developed yeast and they had, you know, a few guys that that was their, you know, sole focus. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't say that I have any examples of of exactly uh, Seagram's uh, things that we've looked at. Uh, and, you know, another part of it is we do maintain a fairly high level of confidentiality with, with companies that we have done business with. 
but you know just kind of speaking in general um you know we we do have a pretty good uh wide breadth of knowledge uh you know across the different distilleries and, and what different people are doing so how nuanced i mean we know with whiskey you can get super nuanced on the barrel type to if you're using a staves after you're doing a fish finishing but like the mash bill <clears throat> what type of corn are you using or you know, is it red? Is it yellow? Is it white? Are things malted? Or are they not malted? Or are you cooking it before you put put it in? Are you mixing the mash all together? Are you cooking it separately at first? And there's a whole bunch of variables there. How much variable is actually there for the yeast? Um. So you know, well, I'll just give you a good example. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been involved with training with probably three or four different distilleries. And one of the exercises that we like to do is to have basically, let's say, 10 different flasks with the same mash bill in them. And then we put different yeast across all those different uh, flasks. So that really the only difference between each flask is actually the yeast strain. And, you know, in the different, just like I said, in the last few weeks, just looking at the results that we've gotten from the classes that, that we've uh, taught, um, you know, some people could pick out the difference between one yeast to the next. And again, this is smelling the fermentation. This isn't actually, yeah. you know, the distillate. So at the fermentation stage, um, you know, some people can, can guess that, hey, this is a different yeast than the one here to the left. Um, other people can't. And so at the fermentation stage, it, it is very, um, it's very subtle. So the yeast isn't going to completely change the profile of a whiskey it's going to give a very subtle uh a little a subtle difference between one to the next now when you get to the distillate part that's where you start picking out more specific notes because again you're concentrating that distillate down and so you start getting more of you know fruity notes very specific fruity notes for example um, and so at the at the distillate phase you can start then picking those strains out but it but it's not night and day difference you know if you switch the yeast strain out it's not going to be a night and day difference with the distillate it's, it's very subtle i mean all the yeast that are used to produce distilled spirits are all the same species of yeast They're all saccharomyces cerevisiae that's the scientific name for for the yeast it's the same uh, species of yeast that's used for beer wine uh, distilled spirits and bread making so it's all the same species so they're fairly they're already very similar mm-hmm. so there's just slight nuances between the uh, different strains i always figured it was you know kind of akin to like a you know when a baby's born most babies all look pretty similar <laughs> then they get a little time you know months months become years and as the, the age goes on, then you see more characteristics develop, and it's, it's more of a foundation thing that you probably can't tell a difference of at the get-go. But but as the product moves further out, you know, from that inception, then it becomes much more noticeable. Of, oh yeah, here's what we did with this one, and here's what we did with that one, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, human babies are actually the result of sexual intercourse. <laughs> And uh, yeast are most often the result of asexual reproduction. So there's a, another very uh, unique difference. Well, and if, if the yeast is present there, you're probably not going to yield a child. It always gets me back to my favorite Seinfeld episode. One of them, the one with the ugly baby. They always go, I've said this already on the podcast, so I'll make it quick, but they go over and they just go, well, he's something. 
You know, like, <laughs> they, they don't they don't say like, oh, he's ugly or he's good looking. <laughs> oh, he's something, all right. The parents are like, yeah, he really is. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of babies out there, but not all of them are always going to look as good as some of the other ones. Kind of like yeast. I have no idea what makes one yeast better than the other. Like, why is the salty saccharide better than, uh, I know I butchered that, but why is that one better than another type of yeast? And what is even the name of another type of yeast? So, so some other differences between, uh, well, you know, one way to think about yeast in terms of whiskey is how does one yeast strain impart flavor to one whiskey versus how does another strain impart flavor to another? Uh, but there are actually a lot of production-based attributes that we want to look at as well. I mean, in distilled spirits production, one thing that you want out of a yeast strain is for it to finish all the sugar in in uh, fermentation because you know if we were making beer we might want to have a yeast that leaves behind a little bit of sugar and that way you have kind of a sweeter beer versus a very dry beer from a strain that uses up all the sugar well in distilled spirits production any sugar that's left over after fermentation is pretty much money left on the table. That's grain that you paid for that you didn't get any alcohol from. So that's something outside of flavor that we look at with yeast strains is its ability to finish that sugar. Then secondary to that is the ability to finish all that sugar in what period of time, you know, and under what other conditions. So, for example, Will that yeast finish a fermenter in two days, three days, four days, five days? What temperature do I have to have? You know, do I have to crank the temperature down to 70 degrees to keep the yeast alive? Or can I run that fermenter at 90 degrees? And so all these different factors play into how long are you going to have to be tying up a fermenter to get uh, the tank done? And then, you know, obviously what flavors are going to go into that? Um, and also uh, the the, you know, uh, utilities you know how cool do I have to keep that fermenter that kind of gets back to you know energy requirements so there's a lot of different factors uh, to do with the yeast outside of just flavor you just wrecked it now there's more variables <laughs> yeah. there's even more variables for just a, a rabbit hole that, that keeps spiraling I love it I mean and, and one of the things that people always say you know the barrel is the part that imparts 65% of the flavor. So all of this science to distilling, to the mash bill, to the yeast, to every last detail about the distilling process and distilling a spirit, it's just for 35%. You know that you're putting in your time, the distiller's putting in their time, and you know they might be following things that you are telling them to do. But all of that time is really just 35% of the overall picture. Well, I think, you know, another way to phrase that would be, let's just say that everybody in this room agrees that 65% of the flavor comes from the barrel. Well, rather than saying 65% of the flavor comes from the barrel, maybe a better way to say it would be 65% of the flavor is facilitated by barrel aging. Because there are a lot of things that are produced by the yeast in fermentation that will play a role in how that chemistry develops during barrel aging. For example, 
you have organic acids that are produced by the yeast. Acetic acid is one of those. There are organic acids produced by contaminating bacteria in that batch as well. And if you think about, just asking the question to you guys, what is a what is a family of chemicals that is tied in with flavor? Like if you can just name a chemical family that is has to do with flavor, can, can you name me a chemical family that has to do with flavor? I'll go with phenols. Okay, that's good. How about esters? I know what those are. We familiar are with that? Esters. There are only two people at this table that are doctors, <laughs> and one of them is not me. <laughs> or it's been a long time. This is organic. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, time. just to, just to, uh, kind of get what I was go- going for there. So yeast produce organic acids. Organic acids condense with alcohols to form esters in the barrel aging process. So there are chemicals that are produced by the yeast in fermentation that come over in the distillate that will then change over time to form these it's not like the esters are just bit coming out of the barrel. They are being produced by a combination of the conditions of what's going on inside of that barrel, as well as uh, the chemistry that's going on between yeast-produced metabolites and alcohols. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was picturing in my, in my head as you were speaking on it earlier. was, you know, if you're, you're going to give the wood the 65%, but there's still the yeast that's almost the catalyst that's going to drive a lot of those reactions. So even if it has a a lesser role, so to speak, on the get-go, what in turn it yields on the back end is going to be exponentially, you know, bigger piece of the pie, even though it's not getting the credit for it, so to speak. Well, the yeast makes 100% of all the alcohol that's in there, so that's quite a bit of the credit (laughs) right there, you know. Take the alcohol out of whiskey, what do you got left? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) unsweet tea yep (laughs) i guess if you leave a little bit of sugar in there at the very end maybe you will get sweet tea you'd never know though i said unsweet i know but he was just talking about if we don't distill all that stuff in there then there'd be nothing to (laughs) all that sugar would stay there they haven't actually taken all that sugar out Sugar would actually stay behind in the stillage and be essentially yeah. worthless. I pay attention. <laughs> Some days. I have a more important question. What instrument do you play? Um, actually, growing up, I used to play trombone, believe it or not. But in the band that Shane and I uh, had, I was the lead singer. So you were the lead singer, and then what did Shane play? Shane was the lead guitar player. So if you ever need a shitty rhythm guitarist... I uh, played in in bands and I actually played covers and bars in Lexington to guess who's calling hard lately. Sorry. Well, I mean, it's come up. It's it's actually come up, but I, I'm fine. What type of music did y'all play? Um, we played a combination of original and cover tunes, and it's, in terms of the covers we played, it was like you know Stone Temple Pilots and. Um, you know, bands like that. So if you have Sirius XM radio, it would be anything that's on the lithium channel. Anything on the lithium channel, probably 90s rock. I wish we could say that we played more Hair Nation, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, like, I I think of... Um, Look at Johnny Hates Hair Nation. <laughs> I wish I could be on Hair Nation. Facial Hair Nation. <laughs> <laughs> and just digressing here for a second. The thing that I love about 90s music is, like, 
You got that Eddie Vedder, Seven Mary Three, like, you know, like, I have become, like. The y'all. Yeah, did you. Y'all or whatever. Did you do any of that where you kind of sing from the back of your throat? Or are you, like, channeling your inner Eddie Vedder? Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever I do cover tunes, um, I try to nail it as much as, you know, make it sound as much like the original singer as possible. I'm not one to do my own version of of something. I want it to sound, you know, as much like the song that everybody's used to hearing. Um, So, yeah, I would try to do everything that, everything possible. All the, yeah, all that crap. <laughs> she said, I'm going to Yeah. i me Like, you can just sing sounds mm-hmm. that sound somewhat close to what a word would be, and you can sing Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. I was always confused. I forget the song, but he's describing a woman's body, and he says, All five horizons in front of me as her body once was. I cannot look at a woman at any angle and see five different horizons. Like I really, that's black. I know. I've, I've thought about this a lot, to be honest. Like it, no lie. I, I, I can't figure that out. It bothers me. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's haunting, familiar yet. <laughs> <laughs> no angle, clothes, nude, whatever. I can't figure out the five horizons. I've tried. It, it it's bothered me for. Over a decade now. Well, and the best part of that song is when all of a sudden he's like, ooh, like it, it goes from like the, the gnarled to like the deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when he stubbed his toe. <laughs> <laughs> so y'all were in a band. You have a background in, in microbiology. He has a background in mechanical engineering. What then made you decide to go whiskey? Is it that, you know, did you grow up in Kentucky? Was it one of those things where bourbon is all around you guys? And you were like, well, shoot, I think we could do something really good here. It's kind of what we know and, and what, you know, our environment is like. How did how'd that work out? Well, I think it's multifaceted. Um, you know, first of all, you know, anyone who grows up in Kentucky has got some connection to the uh, bourbon industry. Shane, uh, his grandmother actually was a, an employee for the Kentucky River Distillery and ended up becoming the uh, Stitzel Weller Distillery. So she actually worked from, I believe, the time she was 14 years old until she retired. So she started off there close to Danville, where we're at. Uh, working for Kentucky River Distilling, and then went on to retire uh, in Shively at the Stitzel Well Distillery. Uh, I think she was in her 60s. So, you know, there's that family history there. But, uh, you know, if you look at when we started Firm Solutions, which was been about 2006, there was actually a lot of, I mean, that was the kind of the height of a major economic downturn, uh, which, you know, wasn't the best time to be starting business. <laughs> but um, we were actually very successful, uh, luckily. But, you know, around that time, um, and looking at the types of distilleries, you know, as yeast providers, you know, if you're in business with anything, you want to sell as much as what your, what your products that you have as possible. And around 2006, 2007, the federal government was shaping up what is called the uh, Renewable Fuel Standard. And it's where they basically mandated an increase of production of fuel alcohol for fuel. 
So, uh, you know, if you go to the pumps, what, what makes a gas from regular to mid-grade to super unleaded is the amount of ethyl alcohol in there. So that ethyl alcohol is what boosts the octane, and that's made here domestically. So about 10 to 15 percent of all the uh, fuel used here in the United States is domestically produced fuel alcohol. So being a yeast provider, do you want to get a distillery that has a 20,000-gallon fermenter, or do you want to get a distillery that has a 1.2 million-gallon fermenter? So we kind of went after a fuel alcohol, and that's kind of was around the time the government was mandating increased production of fuel ethanol. Because of that, are you able to then kind of make your own gas? I feel like you could do it. It might be $4 at the pump, but that secret sauce that's making it go from what they buy a bottle of crude, and not to get too deep. We, we don't talk politics here, but I will talk socioeconomics all day. You could go buy a barrel of crude oil and then with your expertise, you could probably distill what the final product would be for a heck of a lot cheaper than $4 a gallon if it ever goes up that high, right? Uh, I mean, you know, that's debatable. That's kind of getting a little bit outside of our area of expertise. But I'm just checking. I mean, I need yeah. to know who to call if yeah, gas yeah. Oh, goes yeah. up over 4 bucks a gallon. Oh, yeah. We can help you out. <laughs> Get a Tesla at that point. All right, so you all started going for, you and Shane started going for the fuels. What then made you go whiskey? Okay, so, I mean, we didn't just... Well, not just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you all started yeah, going yeah. for the fuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, those were the larger customers. Got to put food on the table. That's right. That's right. Well, they probably pay better than some craft distillery down the road. Well, and at that time, you know, the craft distilling movement was, you know, non-existent compared to what it is now. So kind of an advantage with starting over on the fuel side, outside of the volumes of, of yeast and other products that they use, is that fuel alcohol distilleries are highly sophisticated compared to beverage alcohol distilleries. I mean, they've got, you know, they have to make a profit getting much less on a gallon of whiskey than what we can get over on the beverage side. So in order to maximize their profitability, they have to use very sophisticated technologies and lab testing and all these different techniques to really dial in their production. So they're maximizing getting every drop of alcohol per bushel of grain that they possibly can. So that helped us to kind of bridge, take some of that technology from fuel alcohol and uh, bring it over to beverage alcohol distillery. So kind of introduce some of that high-tech, you know, production techniques over to our uh, beverage alcohol customers. And so we just kind of bridge that gap. So the laboratory that we have at Firm Solutions does things very highly sophisticated like they would do in a fuel alcohol plant. And we, we, we try to help beverage alcohol distilleries sort of, you know, become more of that sophisticated, give that sophisticated look at the process. Whereas, you know, some of these older distillers, especially if you look at some of the traditional beverage alcohol, you know, bourbon producers in Kentucky, some of those are using, you know, 100-plus-year-old techniques, and some of the distilleries are over 100 years old. So, you know, they're they're not really highly sophisticated, even though they're owned by multi-billion-dollar companies. Uh, they're not as sophisticated as what they could be. Well, I mean, shoot, there's people, quote unquote, losing barrels left and right. Not everything's sophisticated, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Well, keeping track of a barrel, that's probably harder to do than um, to have a good fermentation. I don't know, arguably. Yeah, so, so where did the, uh, when, when did the gears turn to a, let, let, let's switch from just firm solutions to transition over wilderness trail yes sir so you know we started firm solutions 2006 about 2011 ish we started really uh, i mean first of all by that point in time we had begun doing a lot of training for beverage alcohol distilleries as well as fuel alcohol distilleries so to you know how could we do a better job with the training that we were doing you know we had a laboratory we had lecture we could do everything but we didn't we couldn't legally distill so incorporating a small distillery uh, made sense from a training standpoint mm-hmm. you know, we're bringing all these people in training them well it would be nice if we had a distillery and that way we could actually take them through all steps of the process so we started off with a, a small 250 gallon pot still which uh, in a long day, we could make uh, one barrel of bourbon. <laughs> so uh, we started off that way. And, and again, it was kind of like, you know, this will be a good tool for us to use for training. And then, you know, we started making a few barrels and started doing the math. I was like, shit, man, we can't really, we can't have a, a, a meaningful brand making one barrel of whiskey a day. So it just made sense to expand. And I think our first uh, expansion beyond one barrel a day was to a one shift operation on an 18 inch diameter Vendome beer column still. So we went from pot still to a beer column. And that, uh, that setup gives us about 12 to 13 barrels in a shift. So we started off with that in one shift and then we started adding shifts to that. And then about a year ago, we finished our third expansion. So we're also one of the only distilleries that I know of that expanded three times before uh, releasing our first bottle. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe another uh, detrimental uh, business plan there. But about a year ago, we finished a third expansion, added a 36-inch diameter Vendome beer column that took us up to 220 barrels a day. This might be a personal question. Ooh. You don't necessarily need to answer it, but... Considering the fact that you guys were profitable and had another business first, did you then need to take on a lot of outside investments when it came to the distillery? Because I just find it interesting that you have not only the distillery, but you know a few expansions right away. Was it something that you guys were like, all right, we're in it to win it. It's our money. It's our kind of business that we've grown from Firm Solutions to become wilderness trail or was it something where you guys kind of had to go for some help too? no we actually uh basically cashing the paychecks over on the firm solution side to fund the wilderness trail side so we actually never brought in any outside investments congratulations that's gonna be a heck of a lot better when uh certain things you know if, if anything changes down the line as i'm sure it will because there's some great stuff here uh, so my hat's off to you in advance. Thank you. I noticed that the side of your bottle said sweet mash instead of sour mash. What made you decide to go sweet mash over sour mash? I mean, I think the only other place that we know that really advertises sweet mash is Peerless. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, <clears throat> there's a quote that, that we that we often will bring up. And that quote is... That consistency is the mark of a pro. I don't know who said that originally. Maybe it was Parker Beam. That's kind of who comes into my mind. 
uh, somebody like that. But consistency is the mark of a pro. And what they mean is, you know, consistency. I mean, you want to make a good whiskey consistently. And to be considered a professional in, in bourbon production, you want to have good consistency. And if you look at all the different things that go into whiskey, a whiskey recipe, for example, you know, the grains, the water, the yeast strain. I mean, those things should be fairly consistent from day to day, providing you're sourcing your ingredients properly. Well, the one thing, and this is again coming from experience of working with literally over a thousand different distilleries, one thing that we know through working with distilleries is the one thing that is not consistent from day to day is the back set. That's the leftovers after distillation that you would recycle back to make a sour mash. So if our goal is to produce a very consistent product, then why would I want to include an ingredient that is not consistent on a day-to-day basis? So that's one reason why we decided to go with sweet mash. Another reason, you know, if you ask, you know, sour mash producers, why do you use back set? Why do you use the sour mash process? The answer that you'll most often get, and I think you'd probably agree with this, is they say because it makes it more consistent. And, yeah, that's and you lost me just saying, yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what they say. That's what they say. And 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 then you kind of get deeper into that. It's like, well, what does back set actually do for you? It acidifies the mash okay so if you take the ph of the mash down you definitely would decrease the potential for microbial contamination you don't eliminate it but you can decrease it so you sort of give yourself a little bit of a a little bit of wiggle room with respect to microbial contamination now why would we want to put ourselves at risk for a little more bacterial contamination by doing the sweet mash process we're freaking firm solutions so we got firm solutions ability capabilities in the laboratory right there on site so if anybody can i mean we're the world's you know one of the premier companies that companies call when they have bacterial contamination issues so we're able to deal with that so we weren't afraid to do the sweet mash with respect to opening ourselves up for the potential of uh, microbial contamination so you know, there's other reasons why you would or would not want to do a, a sour mash. And, and, you know, most great whiskeys that are produced in Kentucky are made with sour mash recipe. So we're not trying to say sweet mash is better than sour mash. It's just, you know, when we put our stake in the ground, you know, how can we differentiate ourselves? And that's just one of the ways that we do that. Was there a lot of pressure having the background that you have and having that knowledge and having trained all these people before a lot of people say, those who can't do teach, those that can do are, are off there doing it. I mean, you are, are, in a sense, putting your money where your mouth is, literally and figuratively, to now make your own product. How much pressure was there to move to that role in the distillery? Well, at the time that we you know started the distillery... Um, you know, one of the, the, the reasons we started it is because, you know, I guess one day we just kind of woke up and it was like, okay, wait a second. We're sitting here taking phone calls from some of the most famous, you know, master distillers or whatever in the industry, and we're helping them with their issues. So we had a lot of confidence that, I mean, you know, not only did we know all the different ways 
not to run a distillery because again <laughs> we're engaging with with these different hundreds of different distilleries on technical consulting and troubleshooting issues we already knew many many ways many things you don't want to do and then also we did learn a lot of best practices so you can take all the exclude all the bad ideas we've seen and incorporate all the good ideas we've seen and then incorporate that into our own unique ideas you know my background in microbiology biochemistry shane's background in process design and engineering so uh, we were actually very confident i don't think there was ever a moment where we doubted that we could make excellent whiskey because again we're answering phone calls from uh, some of the other professionals out in the industry a simple question where'd you come up with Wilderness Trail, and it, admittedly I ask because in countless messages, WT will pop up, and the first thing that comes to my head is wild turkey, and then, oh, no, no, Wilderness Trail. And it, it's led to a lot of confusion. I, I, I will admit that, but uh, I just wonder well, where the name came from. It's better than people that call Bellmead BM. If you're talking about Bellmead bourbon, this is just a PSA right now. Please use BMB. I'm pretty sure there's context clues that know if you're talking about a BM no, or not. Just use BMB because that's an extra letter. It's everything that people say, I just want to say something back to. Like yo, Zeke will send me a text. It's called a context clue. It's it's a context clue, but it's like just use BMB. But when somebody says, "Hey, I'm going for a picket," WT. That's a little different. This is very recent because you all weren't doing picks until about a year ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zeke. What if someone said, uh, it's late at night, I'm going to have a BM before I go to bed? <laughs> if you don't yeah. have, right? Yeah, I mean, there he comes for 40 minutes. We haven't got Jared to say anything. And he comes in with the best thing said all night. I would admittedly say it depends on who you're talking to. If it came from me, you might be really confused. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the similarity between our initials and other uh, famous distilleries, I mean, you know, we're definitely happy to be uh, in that same uh, family there. Um, but, you know, we start off as Wilderness, Wilderness Trail Distillery, and the Wilderness Trail is actually the path that Daniel Boone and other settlers took through the uh, Cumberland Gap to settle the area where our distillery is located. Okay. We're, actually, we're actually located along what's known as the Wilderness Trail, Wilderness Trace, the Wilderness Road. So we're right there. Gotcha. No, I had, had no clue. The Owen said it hurt me, but it, it does throw a curveball at times when you, mm-hmm. you're in a deep you know, message thread with a group of people. Like, WT, WT, oh, yeah, we talk. Oh, hold on. Come on, yeah. you're confusing me again. Yeah, that, that worked in our favor early on, uh, very early on in our Twitter days. Uh, that we would get a lot of mentions m- meant for wild turkey, but we would get that for us, and of course we would take it. You know, no, of course, uh, at, 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 uh, you know, at WT Distiller is what our handle is. So, yeah, well, I heard somebody we were talking about uh, different whiskeys earlier at dinner tonight, and somebody mentioned a Buffalo Trail. So I thought, uh, <laughs> I've heard that too. So That's a poetic justice there. You know. It, it kind of gets to be a blur, you know, yeah. with multiple factors involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're happy to uh, be a part of any mistake so long as it benefits us. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to the juice, we, we've got a few options here. And I don't, I don't, honestly, I'm not sure if that's all the different mashes you guys have, uh, but, but let's, let's move through those a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jarrett's over there pouring our single barrel bottled in bond wheated bourbon. 
So that is a, uh, a recipe with 64% corn, 24% wheat, 12% malted barley. And again, that's a single barrel bottled in bond. Um, and that's what he poured, and that's what we're smelling and drinking right now. Yeah, this this barrel here yielded us 249 bottles at 100 and proof. Ooh, that's yeah. all I'd yield for four years. Yeah. That's my first taste of this barrel specifically. Mm-hmm. And it's a good nose on it. Now, what made you pick the mash bills you, you did? Mm-hmm. You know, is, is there something from your expertise and your, your what you've been doing that made you think that 60%, you know, 64% corn and all that is the right way to go? Mm-hmm. Or? Well, I mean, if you look again, you know, when you, when you're looking at, or when we were looking to put our uh, stake in the ground, you know, what's going to differentiate us from, uh, you know, the other distilleries. I think we've always been seeking to make the best bourbon in the world. And when we look at the, you know, the recipes for some of the, you know, top selling bourbons, a lot of that, a lot of the corn amounts are way up in the 70s, you know. And if you're going to make a financial decision about, you know, increasing profitability, you know, the corn is the cheapest grain in the grain bill. It's got the most starch in it normally. So the more corn you have in your recipe the cheaper your recipe is going to be and the more alcohol that you can get out of it so you know again when we put our steak in the ground we wanted to have more of an old style traditional recipe you know as i mentioned before shane uh his grandmother you know used to be part of stitzawella distillery and if you look back at some of those mash bills going back when you know that distillery was making some of the most famous whiskeys in the world uh, th- those that's more reflective about what they're making. So I think it really just follows our desire to make the best whiskey in the world. And we believe that the flavor is in the smaller grains. So we want more of the smaller grains like wheat, uh, rye, malted barley, and less of the corn. I, I know Zeke likes that you said that. <laughs> Chief fan of the middle grains? I, I, I like a little malted barley here and there. Mm-hmm. To me, it... it, it it's necessary, and I know it's necessary for enzymatic reactions, mm-hmm. but to me, it just adds something to the profile that, if it's not there, I don't generally like it. <laughs> uh, I will say, wheaters, for whatever reason, I don't pick up as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I really don't. I mean, there's plenty of folks that... It just takes longer, mm-hmm. too, right? Like, if you get a four- or five-year weeded whiskey, and you're like... Mm-hmm. This probably needs about six, seven, eight years, at least to to get to. And I don't even know that many weeders that have gone 10, 12. Like there's a lot of people that get weeders out early, you know, with the exception of William LaRue Weller and the BTAC collection and, you know, those highly allocated weeders and pappies. and weed very well. I'll tell folks like you. More times than not, when folks say a wheaters, you know, fair to good, mm-hmm. my impression's less, and I, yeah. I just know it going in. Like, sorry, I, I, me and that grain don't just jive too well for whatever. An analogy that I use is, you know, is that the the wheat kind of gives you an open window to the barrel, and so the barrel comes through more with wheated whiskeys early on, and 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 you know, young wood 
is can can be offensive. I mean, there's things about young, uh, you know, that young barrel flavor that cut through in a wheat that, that are kind of covered up by the spiciness of rye. So the wheat kind of is an open window to that barrel flavor. And so I think that's one reason why it just takes, you know, a little bit extra time. Which is funny because everybody kind of says like the barley that's going to make things a little more mellow, but a little more palatable across the whole thing. You're not going to have that like super spicy part of it. You're not going to have that cornbread part of it. Like it, it just barley is an equalizer. Yeah. Now, you know, we were talking about corn being the cheapest grain in the mash bill and having the most starch. The malt is actually the most expensive grain in the mash bill and, and arguably has the least amount of starch. So from a production standpoint, you know, there's reasons why you, you know, like money reasons why you would or wouldn't have less. Uh, so if I'm trying to lose weight, though, my goal is to probably pick one that has more malt than one that has more corn, right? Uh, depends on if that's going to make you drink more of it or <laughs> not, I guess, if your goal is to lose weight. <laughs> it's called water, John. Touche. Touche. Yeah. And while your malt might might cover up some of those mistakes, too, it also leads to a lot of uniformity, though. You know what I mean? It just kind of tastes the same. Yeah, well, you know what, I mean? and what I'm curious about is, you know, just to digress here for a second again, so Zeke and I are pretty much opposites for so many different reasons and you know and i can tell that i mean obviously you're a very smart man you're you're calculating and thinking things is shane that way or is it kind of a yin and a yang um i mean there's a little bit of yin and yang going on i mean we have uh slightly different personalities but shane and i are great friends i mean anytime yeah. you you have a, a partnership like that and you know you, you guys i mean i hate shit. zeke but i love zeke it's, yeah it's yeah that type, and and i'm sure it's vice versa you know it's yeah, not a yeah. one-way thing yeah sometimes me and shane will get on a conference call and, and and the person on the other end of the phone doesn't know which one of us is talking at any given time because we've hung around with each other so much. <laughs> we almost talk the same. And, and yeah, we don't same. have that problem. Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> so uh, you well, know, no, I mean, the problem is, is they both get on the call and they're like, "Hey, hey, 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 hey. there's your horizon song again." So you, you have a little bit of balance, though, right? Oh, yeah. That you, you all have been around. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I find funny is just the dynamics of people that work together. I, I always talk about, you know, like Charlie and Andy Nelson. And I don't know how much time you've spent with them. Good bit. When I did a podcast with them, and I was, I was in there with the conference room with them, and I'm like, you know... It's like, I find it very interesting. You guys are the total yin and yang. And this is one of the reasons why we do things in person, because you're not going to get this from a Skype or anything else. And yes, they're in Nashville, so we'd be really lazy if we didn't do it in person. But they wear their watches on different hands. Mm. So one wears their watch on the left hand, one wears their watch on the right hand. And then if you think about their personalities, you know, Yin and Yang, mm. and they well, come one left hand. That's a great question, but at the same time, it's irrelevant to the story. One is extremely <laughs> analytical, and one is extremely extroverted. And you put them together, and they make the perfect person. 
you know, and, and, and that's why one is more focused on distilling and one is more focused on going around telling people about that. I mean, not saying that analytical people can't come out and, and tell the story very, very well. Let me give the outsider take on someone that's not the person giving an answer on himself. Uh, but him and him and Shane are actually very similar. I, I think they're both very driven. Uh, uh, they're both the kind of that that type A, both people person. You know, that there are different similarities. But you would think there's more that yin and the yang would make the partnership work. Uh, but like Pat mentioned, they're also like best friends. So I think that's what makes it work more. It's like just, just two guys that have a lot in common and that's what makes it work more than, than the balancing act of it. Congratulations. You earned your raise today. Yeah, nice. Uh, all right. So let's talk about the booze. Let's get back to some fun stuff here. Well, I think everything has been fun, but we just got through this one that, that I find we didn't get through it. Nobody's talked about it. That's oh, well, why I said let's get back to it. Let's Nobody talk said about buy it or borrow it. See, <laughs> I almost think there's as I almost think even though it's a low corn, I get the corn on it. Like there's hints of it that are there, but it's more like a cooked corn. And as a fat guy, I really like that. Like it's like a little bit of cornbread to it. Um, and I know I'm oversimplifying a lot of this, but. You know, for sixty-four percent corn, it's not it's not corn like Tennessee distillery corn profile that Zeke can immediately identify. It's our sawdust. You know, there are hints of corn in here that are it's, but it's a, in a nice way. I don't know if you are all getting that too. No, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you know. Besides just the grain, I mean, a couple things relative to our grains that I'll, I'll mention to you is, first of all, we source all of our corn and our wheat and our rye, actually, from a local farm there in Danville. So, you know, we're going to get the nuances of kind of the terroir of what that particular farm has to offer. Ah, that word. The other thing about... Um, the farmer, the specific farmer that we deal with, they're actually a seed farmer. So they keep all the varieties separate. So we have a very unique opportunity to do uh, mashes with single varieties of each of these grains. So, you know, how much does that contribute to the uniqueness of our bourbons? I mean, is it more the fact where it's grown, the varieties? Uh, but we also have a very different mashing process. So the temperature at which we're cooking our grains, how we introduce our grains into the mash, how we are introducing heat into our cooker. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, factors just kind of around those things that would impart the flavor that you're getting out of our bourbon. And we would love to take your class and... Um podcast it because this is something we can probably talk about for oh, yeah. hours and hours and hours but i get a lot of the malt on this too 12 percent malted barley for some things that have come out recently that have been very very high malt like chattanooga whiskey or um old elk or things like that i almost get as much malt on the profile on this one as i would on some of the other ones like and I, I think it just kind of goes, and I'm going to say a word that people hate. It kind of goes to the general smoothness for me. I know you're not allowed to say that word, but I think a higher malt presence makes for a very easy drinker in a nice way of putting it. 
<laughs> what do you think, Zeke? I picked up, like you said, a fair amount of the corn. And again, it wasn't, you know, sawdust corn by any means, but these days in the market, there's such a preconceived notion that when you tell somebody they're drinking a wheater, yeah, um, yeah, it 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 puts you behind the eight ball almost. I mean, you, you're in a stance of shit. This better be really damn good, or our folks are gonna knock it even more than you. You know, you pour it to them blind or just said, "Hey, try this whiskey." Yeah, um, and I. I think, unfortunately, that's really where the the market is and and where people are. If you're just trying to, you know, keep your you know pulse on where drinkers are, so to speak. Well, and with well, we're foolproof <clears throat> and no WA yeah. and well, yeah, but the, and then they're yeah. You say weeder, they expect the expect tasters like that. But those are lackluster now. They're not giving enough time in the barrel. They're barely seven years. We've we've talked about it, but in general, that that's just where we are now as a consensus. I think as far as a buildup of. You hear wheat and mash, you, you just expect something, even if you don't know what it is. Like, it's going to wow me. Yeah. I don't know why, but they yeah. said wheat, it's going to be damn good. Yeah. And, and you know, kind of we talked about it, I think they just need a certain amount of time. My only, I guess, question would be, in, in your mind, where, where do you put the the mark, so to speak, on how far a wheater really needs to go to, to have that necessary age well there's how far would a weeder need to go and then how far does uh, our weeder need to go not necessarily so, the best phrase question well I like you know we're, we're nearing uh, actually we're we're just now into six-year-old on our uh weeded bourbons and um you know we're definitely seeing uh, a kind of a turn in the corner from the five-year to the six-year, you know, four-year going to the five-year. I mean, there was a little bit of differences, and then but getting into the six-year, and, and again, we're only into a certain number of barrels, and I think we're planning on doing a, a, a age state at six-year in the spring once we're into a good bit of six-year-old barrels. But, you know, when we get to that point, we'll have more information on, you know, because we just – I mean, we, we, we can't really comment until we get the data. And so we're just now getting into six years. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So we're really looking forward to seeing how it gets, you know, seven year, eight year. Yeah. I'm guessing, you know, based on what other experts have said and in what, what Shane and I have discussed and other members of our team, um, you know, seven to eight years is, is kind of a really sweet spot for, for weed at Yeah. I mean, that, that, I, got, that, I think getting close is – at least as close as you can to that eight mark these yeah. days. That that's where you just have to get to. But at the same time, you have to understand. You know, as a consumer, you have to kind of grasp. It's tough to have you know being a small startup and juice just sitting in the barrel and yeah. people wanting and wanting to put it out and saying, no, nah, even if you like it, you know, let's just think about this. Let's give it a little more time. Let it sit a little bit longer. I know you want to pull it, but we'd rather get to you know a certain spot. I mean, it's mm-hmm. got to be a a, a a juxtaposition to be in as far as well. We're going to pay you for the barrel now. Well, we get it, mm-hmm. and we want that check probably, but we're going to sit here for a minute. But I have to think it was unique for Pat and Shane and and the crew over at Wilderness Trail. The, the you know they're still getting income from Firm Solutions. So, Zeke, say you and I go start a distillery. We're like, 
all right, well, shit, we spent X amount of dollars for these barrels, and then we got to get them out at some point because we need to start getting money in. Mm-hmm. If you think about it from a business solution, as long as you guys were paying the rent, mm-hmm. you know, all the profit is going back into the business knowing that it's a long haul. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So where some people are throwing one year, two year, three year whiskey out, you all have the luxury of sitting back and going, all right, hey, if this goes eight, nine years, it goes eight, nine years. If this goes seven, eight years, it goes seven, eight years. But like, there's no timetable. We're going to mm-hmm. taste it and figure out when it's good. Mm-hmm. That has to be a unique position. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, talking to some of the historians, you know, looking at other brands, you know, even since Prohibition, uh, arguably we may be one of the only, we may be the only distillery to, you know, either that either A, didn't source somebody else's juice or B, didn't put out something less than a four-year-old. So, you know, it is kind of a very unique situation and definitely uh, we're able to kind of sit back because of the financial situation with our firm solutions business. My hat's off to you on that one. Let's move forward a little bit. We we now have this small batch Kentucky straight bourbon bottled and bond whiskey. It is batch 15 G01. Is this the next one you all want to talk about? Or yep. What's the mash on this? What makes this different than the yellow label? So, you know, starting back, just kind of review of what was in the yellow label. That's, again, our wheated bourbon with 64 corn, 24 wheat, 12% malted barley. The uh, small batch uh, black label that you just, that we're referring to now, it's it's actually the same recipe as our wheated, but it has rye swapped out for the wheat. So it's got 24% rye instead of 24% wheat. So a great example of two different bourbons made at the same distillery from the same mash recipe. So, you know, what is the difference between a weeder and a rye bourbon? This is, you know, one of the only examples that I can think of where you've got two products made from the same distillery from the same mash bill. The only difference is one's got rye, one's got wheat. Um, another difference, that they're both bottled in bond as well. Uh, another difference between the two is that our weed it is a single barrel and the, uh, the other one, the rye bourbon, is a small batch. So we batch together 10 to 12 barrels at a time for that. There's some pine on this. You know, it, it, it almost it almost has more rye characteristics. Rye whiskey? Yeah. Okay. Than it does. You didn't grow up in Georgia, son. And a bourbon. Well, Zeke and I have like opposite palates. So when it tingles my mouth, he's like, this is really easy. You know, like. John says pine, and I don't get any of it. And then I think, well, you didn't have to spend summers picking up pine cones on a front day. I did spend summers at a campground you know, with the pine all around. It's not just a northern, southern thing. You did it a girl from Danville, too. So I, I did. I'm glad this is out on the podcast now. But, yeah, I did date a girl from Danville. Great girl. Very nice girl. The piney around there, too, so... I got a little bit of pie. And what do you? Let's let's ask the expert. What do you get on uh, this one? I get the. Uh, I get a little bit of that coniferous type of uh, 
I, uh, I like that word. You can tell this is a man who's very highly educated. <laughs> what he's using, coniferous versus deciduous. <laughs> that's that's Cani- Coniferous going. is another way of saying piney. Yeah, <laughs> like a, a pine nut, a little small little green nuts. Small nuts. A little small like green seedling. They're smaller than a sunflower. They have like some uh, trail mix or whatever. Isn't that a pine nut? Yeah, something else. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Girl pine nuts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I get that aspect of it, but I wouldn't call it piney by any means. Yeah. No, I mean, but I get a little bit of pine. Like, there are yeah. hints of pine that are there, and I, I only call that out because it's not always... That's typically a rye note mm-hmm. that... Well, it's got rye in it. He said that. I know, but I'm... No shit. <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying... A lot like, more like a rye whiskey as opposed to a rye bourbon. Yeah, this kind of drinks a little bit more to me than like what a Knob Creek rye would be. And I find there's a big difference between Kentucky rye and MGP rye, yep. where that Kentucky rye is going to go half and half. Sometimes it tastes more like a bourbon. Sometimes it tastes more like a rye. I have a feeling that with this recipe for you all, some of these barrels come out tasting super bourbony. Some of them come out tasting super rye-like. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, some other comments about the uh, the rye that we use. You know, most Kentucky bourbon producers use rye in their recipe. But we're one of the only Kentucky distilleries that actually uses rye that was grown in Kentucky. And that's one reason why our rye whiskey and our rye bourbons are a year behind in maturation than are weeded. Because it took us an extra year to get locally grown uh, rye. Oh. So if you look at rye grown in other states versus rye grown in Kentucky, you know, just visually immediately you can kind of see why most distillers in Kentucky use rye <laughs> grown outside of Kentucky. <laughs> because Kentucky rye looks to me more like what grass seed looks like. Kentucky bluegrass. You know, yeah. and, and rye that you get from other states is more plump. And now <laughs> now that that being the case, when we took those when we took the uh, Kentucky grown rye into the laboratory and started, you know, looking at all the checking all the boxes for, you know, what is this going to make a good whiskey? It, it checked all the boxes in terms of starch content, the ability to mill it and process it properly. Uh, we normally do have to dial down the speed at which we feed our rye into our milling system uh, because it is a little more fibrous. But it makes great taste in whiskey. But that's one of the other things that, that might set ours apart from others that you've had is the fact we use Kentucky-grown rye. And a lot more rye in there, too, than, mm-hmm. than others. Yeah, It's like great taste, less filling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's like Miller Lite. Yeah. Except we don't use any corn. High fructose corn syrup. Corn syrup, yep. <laughs> yeah. That's even better. Now, the rye... To be, I think it's a very traditional Kentucky rye. The rye whiskey? Yeah, the yeah. rye whiskey. Yeah. I think it's a very traditional. You know, I'm, I'm oversimplifying the notes here, knowing that we've, we're have we pretty deep into this conversation now. we got to take some corners at some point. It's a very traditional rye whiskey. It's not going to be one of those 95.5 whiskeys that you kind of put in one box I think there's enough variance here and, and knowing the mash bill like I do now, this is one where it's like, hey, don't sleep on this. You're going to have to taste each batch and figure out which batches you really, really like. Thankfully, they have multiple batches and you're going to find one that you like. Well, single barrels too. Yeah, all single barrels. There's going to be... No, I mean, we tasted through, I think, four of these 
couple weekends ago and very distinct, noticeably different profiles. And that's where I laugh and enjoy rye the most is like generally speaking, bourbon, people kind of agree on wheaters. You get a little more variance. At least I do because I just can't seem to like too many of them. But rye, man, you, you get all over the board. I mean, you put five people in a room, they taste three different ones. At least one person likes something that was somebody else's least favorite, et cetera. And to me, that, that's really what's fun. And, and you're know, diving in and like, all right, what'd you like? Yeah. Damn, you like that one? I thought we was friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I'm, I'm sure you see it. Oh, you know, yeah, going yeah, through yeah. all the barrels oh, and, and you, know, you thieve it out and you, you put it in the glass for oh, you know, yeah, whoever's yeah. around you and just kind of watch and see what they all say, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I kind of, I, I watch, I, I, you gotta be careful walking in the middle of some of these barrel pits because <laughs> try you're ending up being the tiebreaker. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, there's these three people, each like these three individual. So which one do you think's the best? So you're getting ready to make one person very happy and piss two of them off. So, Somebody you know, tried my, my high-rise bourbon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Somebody did something that was kind of nasty recently. We, we were at a Jack Daniels pick, and we were stuck on two. And then what they ended up doing is they ended up taking the one that had the highest rating for the ones that we did like and put it up against the one that nobody liked. Mm. And it was almost like a test. Like, is anybody mm. going to go after this one that nobody liked? Mm-hmm. Instead of like, you think the top two would have a showdown. Mm. They were like, no, it's going to be top two and choice number three. Yeah. Pick which one you like better. So at least it still flopped. Yeah, it, at least we were very consistent. Yeah. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. One thing I want to talk about, and, and you've mentioned it, is you know the expertise that you have. So you're talking to thousands of distilleries, which is really funny because probably you know when you started this, you were maybe talking a hundred distilleries, uh, a few, I mean, a few hundred if we were lucky. But there was a huge disparity from where the number was then to where it is now. And um, it's something you've been working on a lot. Like, tell us a little bit about what you're doing almost on the firm solution side, right? Mm -hmm. To educate people, but also kind of consult people and get them to where the wilderness trail side is at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, right? Yep. Let's see. On the firm solution side... So if you look at the number of distilleries we're doing business with today versus when we first started our distillery, um, we've done a lot of different training. Ex, you know, uh, that's, that's how we get a lot of our customers is get in front of them for training. Like, you know, we do a lot of training at our facility. We engage uh, in training at different universities, University of Kentucky, for example. They're starting up the uh, Distilled Spirits Research Institute there, which we've been a part of. I wish they did that a long time ago. Yeah, they've got a a beer, wine, and distilled spirits program there that that we uh, teach in. And uh, I I, uh, do a lot at Moonshine University there in Louisville. So since we started our distillery, coincidentally, we've gotten in front of a lot of of people. And, you know, I would guess that that there's probably a hundred distilleries that we're working with right now that probably won't be starting up for at least another year. 
So, you know, just kind of looking at, you know, training that, that we did last week, those accounts are going to come to fruition maybe for another couple of years. And then if you look, you know, the, the training we were doing two or three years ago, that's business we're just now starting to get now. So it just kind of snowballs over time. Yeah. And, and you know, then transitioning that over to, uh, you know, Wilderness Trail, um, you know, how many other, I mean, if we look at just knowing a, a lot of other master distillers and people that run distilleries, I mean, We'll, we might engage in a day's time between Shane and I or between us and, and our laboratory and our other technical uh, staff. You know, we might engage in 60 or more different, uh, you know, problem-solving scenarios in a day's time. Well, that might be more than a, than a master distiller who spends their whole career at one distillery would see in their entire career. So on a day-to-day basis, we're seeing just lifetimes worth of issues and then just over time you get kind of used to uh dealing you know you hear buzzwords and you know oh wow that that's got to be bacterial contamination or oh (laughs) this sounds like a grain quality issue or this sounds like an enzymatic conversion issue or this sounds like there might be a squirrel stuck in the recirculation line (laughs) or whatever you know you just kind of get used to hearing and then we sort of have our you know what what questions do we ask based yeah. on what type of uh, scenario were we presented with. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's pretty interesting as well. I, I always kind of talk about it for my day job, right? A lot of what I do is find something that's scalable and repeatable. That's huge. And, I mean, I, I told you before, one of the things I want to talk about is like everybody I talk to in Tennessee talks about how they went and talked to you you are actually working individually with the stories, helping them get going. I mean, a lot of the Tennessee whiskey trail can probably trace itself, but it, you are like the Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick of the whiskey world. Yeah. 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 And you know, not just me, my business partner, Shane, he's, uh, you know, it just depends on what. It's okay. Doing. He didn't come down here. So we're going to say, you that's what you get for staying yeah. home. Shane. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be doing an event somewhere, and and there'll be another beverage, alcohol beverage company there. I'm like, oh hey, we get yeast from you guys at Firm Solutions. Like, oh cool, you know, and and yeah, it's neat how how widespread uh, Shane and Pat are in the industry. What do you really enjoy? That is that the thing that kind of brings you pride in addition to your whiskey, obviously. Oh yeah, I mean, I think it. I mean, definitely gives us a lot of pride. Um, but also, um, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just a kind of an empowered position, you know, I mean, it gives us a lot of confidence as well in what we're doing, uh, you know, to have so many people that come to us and and rely on us for information. It's, it's just sort of, uh, you know, kind of warms the soul. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know. It's always good to be wanted. Oh yeah. Yeah. Say that again. It's always good to be wanted. You know, it's one of these things right now. I would want to talk to Pat for another, like, five hours. I think we might have to talk to Pat again. But, you know, if if there's one thing, like, what is your favorite thing that you do? Because you do wear so many hats. Mm-hmm. And you, you have the yeast side. You have the, the whiskey side. And you have the education side. Uh, my favorite thing to do is uh, is engage with an audience in, in an educational uh, setting. 
uh, you know, like the teaching that, that we do. Yeah. Um, that's probably my favorite thing to do, whether it be showing somebody around the distillery or up in front of a class. You know, I really like the engagement. I, I really uh, like the fact that we are so helpful to people. Um, and but that, that's that's probably my favorite part of it is that I mean you know sitting around in bars and, and drinking our stuff and engaging with people that way is also fun. But I really like that that interactive kind of educational type of where somebody's really eager eager to learn about the process and we have a lot of knowledge to give and can answer you know most questions. So it's pretty cool. My uh, I guess final question I had logged in the mind was I guess simply with a you, know, you guys are still pulling a solid yield on all the products and it you know 200 plus barrels or 200 plus bottles 255 you know, on some of them yeah that's a bit of a you know I don't know a store obviously but consumerism and, and that kind of thing that's a bit of a yield to take on have you guys looked at like a partial barrel pick type of program. Yeah. Where someone takes, you know, yeah, a half yeah, barrel yeah. or so to well, speak. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the cool things about our situation. You know, we're pretty much in charge. Yeah. We can do whatever the hell we want because it's our damn distillery. And, uh, and, and I think we do try to have as much flexibility as we can, you know, because we want to make people happy and we want to be accommodating and we have the power to do that. So, you know, whether it come to, you know, we, we do a little bit of contract production, for example. Mm -hmm. So we're not just going to say, hey, here's the three mash bills we make. Which one do you want? I mean, we can we, we have the flexibility of making batches of 10 barrels. We have fermenters that will get us 60 barrel batches. So, you know, do you want 10 barrels? And then what kind of mash bill do you want? And so, and then, you know, same when it comes to, um, you know, just other day-to-day -day operations is... You know, we, we try to be as flexible as we possibly can, and that's because we can be that way. Not in conclusion, with. damn the man. <laughs> <laughs> Danville. We see a lot of folks, especially the crafts, and, you know, they have good product, but sometimes more than a yield, and I think some stores can take on, especially with not a familiar name. Mm -hmm. So then it's kind of harder for the store to sell, whereas if they can come in like, all right, We'd love to taste through some barrels, but I can't commit to this barrel that's going to yield 200-plus bottles, mm -hmm. but it's going to yield me one, 125, even 150. That's much more approachable and, and much more of a, a manageable sale, you know, from the store owner yeah. side of things versus, you know, no matter how good it is, if the yield is such amount, especially for, you know, the craft and the names that aren't known, right. like three or four big boys. Mm -hmm. It's just hard to move that much product or have that much of an investment, you know, tied up, so to speak. That's when I tell some stores yeah. that they need to partner up. We see a lot of that partnering up and stuff, but one thing we offer our stores that they come in and do barrel pick uh, is that the bottle and bond bourbons, which is the only way that <clears throat> that that's publicly available. But if you come in and do a store pick, we offer our bottle and bond bourbons at barrel strength. 
Uh, so that does reduce the amount of barrels, increase the proof. But for us, you know, we have such a low barrel entry proof of 110 proof on the bourbon. It doesn't change it that much, but you might go from 250 down to, down to 220. Uh, but of course, every barrel being different, we've already had barrels yield as low as 99, I believe, Pat, if that's Which right. Which that would be a leaky damn liquor. Yeah, yeah. But, but still though, out of, catch that one. <laughs> yeah, but, but now out of, out of 55 ish thousand of barrels we have aging, you know, there, there's bound to be those and yeah. stuff in there. So, and, and as we get older and immature, Inventory gets older, that yield will go down too. So, and Jared, I feel like we need to talk to you a whole lot more. And and Doctor Pat, we need to talk to you a whole lot more. Jared had the damn whooping cough. He did. did, He left. He left. Had a TB. I'm not sure he went and get tested. I got it. I I quit smoking years ago, and it all came back tonight. He went and coughed up a hairball. There was something else that was out there, but. you know, one of the things that I just want to mention before we do close up, I want to thank you for what you've done with fuck cancer. It's a, a big, big thing, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up while you were here. I think um, for a lot of us, my kind started it. A lot of people have taken the banner from that. I know that you know, this year marks the two-year anniversary of my mother-in-law passing from cancer. And one of the things I did for my father-in-law was you guys really went above and beyond with the box and the glasses and everything you did, you know, from picking a special barrel to it. I know I was super proud to be able to give my father-in-law that. I just want to applaud you guys for getting on top of that. I want to applaud you for having great whiskey and we're just happy to have met you all tonight. I think we probably need a lot longer time to sit down and talk about stuff so we look forward to that yeah Yeah. we'll even get mike involved i mean here goes to bed yeah yeah Uh, yeah well i had dinner with mike hines earlier which is why it's now one in the morning (laughs) (laughs) thank you mike (laughs) he went to bed at 10 and then Mm -hmm. left us all uh, i appreciate the kind words though that that means a lot to us that that people are taking notice and you know uh in, in terms of the whole you know cancer thing you know, that's something that, that affects us. You know, we have family members that's been touched by it. We have employees right now that are being touched by it. And so uh, it's definitely a great, great thing that we were behind 100%. Yeah, shout out to Denise at the distillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Pat and Shane have really taken the mantle of, of fuck cancer. And uh, like you said, you know, everybody knows somebody that has been touched by yeah. it. So so what a, what a, you know, more of a noble cause could you have, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know it's one for me. It's anytime that comes up, you know, I, I always tell the story. While my mother-in-law was kind of passing and going through that whole thing, my mom got diagnosed at the same time. She's since in remission, but it was like one of those things that really hit the family on both ends really hard. And, and uh, anytime I see anything to do with cancer, something that's near and dear to my heart i want to make sure that that i'm reaching out and doing whatever i can for charities that are supporting that but you know for from you guys that's it, it means a lot plus it's a really freaking good bottle you know and and that makes it super easy when you have to pay a little bit extra for those bottles because yeah. it's going to charity you know, I know that, that you guys, you know, Pat, you and Shane went and made sure that you picked a great bottle of Wilderness Trail. Um, so thank you for that. And mm-hmm. that, that rye is super good. 
you guys got to come back. Yep. We got to do more together. Yeah. This will I, be the introduction to part one of a 10-part series. I feel like John will wear his green chick shirt with his green <laughs> shoelaces in his boots. If I had green shoelaces. But I, I want to – I would love to do one of those Moonshine University classes or something, you know, in podcast. Got a 16-hour one coming up. I would love You'd ask too many damn questions. They'd kick your ass out. <laughs> no, we like questions. You're done. <laughs> Jared, come back when Pat's not here hogging the microphone. <laughs> yeah, man. No, no. I'm just a reflection of of what we do there. You know, what we do at Wilderness Trail is is not bullshit. It's all authentic. Uh, and that's why we can be as good as we are because, uh, you know, Pat can tell the story. I can tell the story. Shane can tell the story because it's the same story. You know, we don't have to rely on on, on what some narrative that some marketing guy uh, came up with, you know. So so I'm happy just to sit back. And uh, and I love listening to Pat talk, man. Pat's a, a great speaker. Uh, so thanks for having us here, man. It's been great. Thanks for sharing your, your liquor with us, too, man. This has been an awesome night. Hey, not a problem. Pat Spoken Class <laughs> today. Down, down, down in the back, big one. <laughs> Pat, thank you so much for coming on. It has been a pleasure having you and can't wait to have you again. Thank hey, you. who knew our, our sweet mash whiskey was good? <laughs> After 16 hours of Pat, you might be like Jeremy. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Where can the folks find Wilderness Trail? You can find us anywhere right now. So, so, so many people listen to all over the world. We're, we're spreading out right now. We're in 11 states, uh, getting ready to add six more. Uh, so, so if it's not in your state, it's within the next state. Uh, you'll be able to find us through different stuff, uh, through, through charity stuff like with Cast Cartel. You'll find us at different online outlets. Uh, and if you don't have us in your in your state or in your your locality, ask for us. You know, you know, put the pressure on. We want to be there. So, so. And y'all are at Wilderness Trail on uh, Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. all that, as well as www.kentuckystraightbourbon.com. That's right. That is how long ago did you buy that one? Uh, I'll take the credit for that. Yeah. So, uh, so sleep at the wheel that day. So, so yeah, so, so some dude, I watched some guy for three months, you know, got onto the, the whatever the web domain registration, yeah. right? And as soon as it popped up, I let uh, bake, let Shane know, and uh, we snagged it that day. So, KentuckyStraightBourbon.com is ours, and rightfully so, because we're carrying on that tradition, you know, that's 200 years old of Kentucky Straight that Bourbon. That guy probably would have charged you like two grand for oh, hell yeah. two, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or he'd be like, hey, you got any pappy? Yeah, don't. And you'd be like, surprisingly yeah. enough, there's some people that used to work at Stitzelwell or yeah. <laughs> we're connected with. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yesterday's um, price was $2,000. Today, it's free. Right. Yeah. That's right, man. <laughs> well, anyways, you can find the dads on Facebook at Dad Shrinker Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Instagram at Dad Shrinker Bourbon. Find us on wherever you listen to your podcast, whatever it is, we are on it. Please leave us an open and honest review like we leave open and honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, uh, Jared. We, we really, really appreciated this. This was a pleasure. Zeke, where else can the folks find us? Music City, USA. Cheers. Ciao.